So if, if you have been at Midtown for any time uh, or been in an evangelical gospel-centered church for any time, uh, when you hear sermons, probably what you're going to hear uh, is whoever's preaching speaking against self-righteousness and self-justification and speaking for leaning into the grace and mercy of God. There's a reason for that because Jesus did that, right? It's a good model to follow. Uh, but also, th- those are the only two responses uh, that anyone of us or anybody ever can have to the character, the work, and the judgment of God. You can only come to Him and either beg for His grace and mercy or come with your self-righteousness. When you are confronted with who this God is, that He's perfect in His holiness and His righteousness and His justice and His truth, in his goodness, um, you can either A, realize, oh no, I'm a sinner. Uh, as Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I have a heart that desires sin. I have a heart that's corrupt. It's so corrupt that whatever I touch, I corrupt. Um, even good things, I corrupt. And you plead for the grace of God, or you come with your self-righteousness. Only two options. Why do I say that? Micah is bringing a message to God's people uh, here at a time when uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has either just fallen or is about to fall. And he's speaking to them and to the southern kingdom of Judah. He's bringing a message that God is about to judge the people for their sin. God's people, especially the leaders, have um, been actively participating in rampant injustice. Uh, They have oppressed the poor. Um, They have hated good. They have loved evil. Uh, They have been greedy. They've been unmerciful. They've been thieves. Um, And yet they think that they're good. In fact, when Micah brings this message of judgment, uh, the the leaders say in Micah chapter 3, there's no judgment that's going to come upon us. There's no calamity that's going to come upon us. There's a 17th century philosopher uh, who, who said that all superiority is odious, but the superiority of a subject over his prince is not just stupid, it's fatal. They think they're good, but they're not. It's not just a problem with the leaders of, of Judah and the leaders of Israel. It's a problem with the people, too. Those that have been recipients of injustice uh, and greed are still uh, people that have adulterous hearts. And so Micah is saying, God is coming for your sin too. So what do you do? Uh, That's the question uh, before us from Micah is, in the face of God's judgment, how do you respond? That's what we're going to talk about. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Micah, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? 
And what is the high place of Judah is not Jerusalem. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. And all her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fever of prostitutes she gathered them. And to the fever of prostitutes they shall return. Now chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God? Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Some of you know who the comedian Russell Brand is. He's a kind of bohemian looking guy. I don't really know much about his comedy. I probably wouldn't care for it. I'm just guessing. Um, but he wrote an article a couple years ago after having a about 10 years of sobriety from drugs and alcohol. And he was talking about his time um, being addicted to heroin and crack, cocaine. And he said that I look to drugs and booze to fill up a hole in me. He said, drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution. Reality was his problem. Do you resonate with that? I do. Um, I think reality is, is our problem. Uh, we, we live in a world that is messy, that's broken, and it's filled with messy and broken people, right? And includes us. That's the harsh reality of life. Uh, so, so how do you deal with it? Because you will deal with it some way. You'll try to push back against it. You'll try to escape it using something. Here, but here's what the Bible says about the harsh reality of life. The, the messiness, the brokenness that you experience from day to day, the relational conflicts that you experience, the injustice, uh, the lack of mercy, um, the disease, the death, the trials, the tribulation that you go through, it's because of sin, including your sin. And guess what? God's judgment is justly provoked by sin. Is justly provoked by sin. In fact, God's judgment is the harsh reality of life that we have to experience. We will all experience God's judgment. So how do you deal with it? How do you escape it? That's the question. Well, here's what the Lord says in Micah. Plead your case. 
How do you deal with God's righteous judgment against your sin? You plead your case. So three points today. First, what's the bad news? What's the big question? And then what's the good news? First, what's, what's the bad news? Um, remember a couple of months ago when the, uh, th- those boys in Thailand were trapped in a cave? Right? There is no reason they should have been in that cave, right? It's monsoon season in Thailand. You don't go into a cave when it's raining, right? You're going to get stuck. Uh, it's, just, it's foolish. Uh, but you remember when you, you first heard about it, um, you, you thought probably like me, oh, no, like they're, they're trapped. How, how are they going to get out? And then several days passed, and they were still trapped. And then you thought, this is really bad because the rain is continuing to fall, uh, they, they showed graphics on the news how they were two and a half miles into the cave. Some spaces to crawl through were only about a, a, a foot wide, 15 inches wide. They sent a Navy SEAL in to get them out, and he died trying to rescue them. You thought, they're, they're done. They're far worse off than, than we thought. That is Judah's problem. That's Israel's problem. That is your problem and my problem. Is that we're far worse off than we think. Right? It's not just because we have been foolish with what God has given us in this life. We have been rebellious to Him. Right? We have been willfully going against what God has designed and demanded of our lives. But we don't think that we're that bad off. We don't think that we're bad people. That's what so many people say. Maybe you've thought that. We don't think that we're that bad. Um, a couple years ago, Dove, the beauty care and skin care company, uh, released a, a program called Real Beauty. If you remember some commercials that they had. They had this forensic sketch artist who would sit on one side of the screen and had a, a woman sitting on the other side of the screen. And she would start to describe how she thought that she looked. And he would sketch her face. And then when he was done, a new woman would come in who knew the first lady, and she would describe the first person. And then he would sketch it out. And then at the end, they compared the two images. The one that, that was drawn from the self-description uh, was a harsher image. It was more coarse. It had more lines, more blemishes. The brows were furrowed uh, because the, the one who gave the description had a lot of negative self-talk had a bad image of herself. Uh, the one that was described by the other person, it was a softer image. It was more attractive, right? More, more appealing. And the point that Dove was making is that we have this problem in, in our culture um, of, of body image, that, that not just women, but men too, all across the board, at a high percentage, people don't like the way that they look, right? It's a lot of negative self-talk when it comes to physical appearance. We don't think well of ourselves when it comes to our body. However, uh, people don't typically have a problem with how they perceive themselves when it comes to their own morality. Right? We, we think that we're, we're pretty good off. And uh, some of you are old enough to remember the 1995 bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. Um, Timothy McVeigh was the, the guy um, who did that. Um, they had a trial and that had a character witness uh, defending or, or in, in defense of Timothy McVeigh. And uh, he was a friend from childhood. He said, you know, this is a guy who was a good friend. He was likable, is likable, um, is hospitable. He said, other than this thing, other than this bombing, he's a good guy. 
we justify ourselves, right? We think that by nature we're actually pretty good people. Um, when when we, we see news uh, on, on the television about things like school shootings, uh, there is never a talk about nature. It's always a talk about nurture. They say, what went wrong in this person's childhood? What didn't they get? What were they missing out that led them to do this thing? And, and they speak of it almost as if we're putting the blame on someone else. Right? It's someone else's fault that this person went in and shot all those kids. They never talk about nature. Right? I, I'm not saying guns don't kill people. You know, People kill people. I don't hear what I'm not saying. Good laws still matter, right? Good nurturing obviously matters. The point is we don't have to be taught to do evil. No one had to put evil inside you. We're evil by nature. As Christians, uh, we, um, we, we like to think better of ourselves and what is you know, reality. Um, you know, we, we pride ourselves um, being devout, pretty devout people. Um, in the 20th century, you had new denominations springing up, like the PCA, um, who wanted to, to defend against and argue against, push back against liberalism and heresy in the church to, to protect the bride of Christ from liber liberal theology. And so they broke away. But in doing so, those churches that broke away, many of them participated in, um, uh, in racist activity, right? Um, and they promoted segregation within their churches. Um, maybe you're someone um, who is careful uh, about what they watch, like the kind of movies that you go see, the kind of TV shows you watch, those with uh, um, you know, uh, obscene language and images, and then we turn around and we, we defend locker room talk of our politicians. We're hypocrites. Uh, we, we talk about how we can't wait to, to see uh, the, the full completion of Jesus making all things new. And then, like myself, I'll go and watch TLC, uh, a show about hoarders, or we watch fail videos on YouTube. Right? We revel in people's brokenness. We, we talk about how how people are made in God's image, how little babies, unborn babies, are made in God's image. And then on social media or through our, our email or through just casual conversation with people, we go on these vitriolic tirades about others that don't hold the same maybe political position as we do. And we mar the image of God that they were made in. We are hypocrites. Right? We hate good. We love evil. This is Judah's problem. It's our problem too. The Lord, in, in Micah chapter 1, He says, Hear. Hear, O Israel. Hear, people. Hear me. It's, it's like he's, he's grabbing us by, by the collar. saying, Hear, Midtown. Listen. This is important. I'm coming to do something about your sin. There's a reckoning that is coming. The imagery that we get from chapter 1 is God coming down from His high place to Judah's high place. That should make us go, uh-oh. A high place in this time was a place of idolatry. right? A place of, of, of worshiping foreign gods. The Lord is coming from His high place. And what does He say in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1? He said, there's not going to be a stone left unturned. He's coming to destroy the images of false gods. To destroy their idols. All that you have corrupted, that your hands has touched, 
All that is in your heart that is corrupt, it will be destroyed. I'm coming to deal with it. This is the message that Micah is bringing. The Lord is is coming for reckoning. He's invading. Buckle up. God is coming to his people saying mountains are going to melt. Heads are going to roll. You are rebels. This is an invasion. That's the bad news. So what do you do with the bad news? What do you do with it? That's a big question. How do you respond to God's judgment? Because we all have to. Right? The Apostle Paul uh, in Philippians quotes Isaiah 45 when he says, There's coming a day, one day, someday, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And either you will confess that as his friend, as his son and daughter, right? The son and daughter of the king. Or you will confess that as an enemy and you will be made his footstool. It's a harsh reality. Unlike some other prophets, Micah, it's interesting, Micah actually never quite directly calls people to repentance. The Lord through Micah just says, here's how you deal with the judgment of the Lord. You plead your case. Chapter 6, verse 1. He says, here people, arise, plead your case before the mountains. So what are you going to do to plead your case? What are you going to do to push back against the reality of God's judgment? What are you going to do to escape it? Well, we're probably going to do something that doesn't work really well or that doesn't last. Because that's just kind of who we are. Um, with Joe Blow on the street, maybe who's not a Christian, uh, here's how it might go. You might put a Be Kind sticker on your car, right? Um, you, you might try to be really hospitable to your neighbors. Uh, you might water their plants. You might uh, walk their dogs while they're out of town. Uh, you might do a lot of service projects in the city uh, to be about social justice and acts of mercy uh, you might give money away to charity. You're going to work hard for your family. You're going to try to raise your kids well, make sure they get a good education. right? And, and you're hoping that if God is watching, that that's going to get you some sort of leverage with him. right? Because we're all pretty good people, and surely he's going he's gonna to think, hey, I'm a pretty decent person too. Uh, but I had, a, I had a professor in seminary who said, um, you know, the pumping heart is good unless it starts pumping venom through your body. Like, if you get bitten by a rattlesnake in Tucson, um, your first instinct will be get up and then run for help. But running is going to kill you. Right? Running is going to kill you. This is kind of the reality that we face. Facing God's judgment, we know, oh, we need help. We need to run to something. But what we run to is going to kill us. Because what do we typically run to? We typically run to our goodness. Right? It includes us as Christians. What do we do? We may not put a be kind sticker on our car. We might put a Jesus fish. Right? We're going to be hospitable. We're going to maybe be about um, acts of mercy and, and justice. Uh, we're going to, uh, to water our neighbor's plants and to walk their dogs when they're out of town. We're, uh, we're going to try to raise our kids well and educate them well. We're going to work hard for our families. In addition to all of the spiritual activity and spiritual discipline that we already participate in. Right? And if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that you would say, you know, it's not the right answer to say we're not doing those things to try to earn God's favor. Because surely we can't earn God's favor by the things that we do, right? We can't earn God's favor by our goodness. But our hearts are deceitful, right? They're deceitful. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. We take even good things and we make them into ultimate things. That's what we call an idol, and so we take being hospitable to strangers and doing acts of mercy and justice and raising our kids well and educating them well 
And so we fashion them into idols and we place them on the scales of God's judgment to justify ourselves. Because our hearts are deceitful. Now, how do you know when you're doing this? It's when those things that you've made into ultimate things, you suddenly use as a measure for someone else's goodness. Right? Like if, if, if you start saying, oh, that's how they raise their kids? Um, that, that is the neighborhood they live in? That is how they spend their money? That is who they vote for? That's where they send their kids to school? They vote Democrat? They vote Republican? They don't vote? <laughs> Here's the point. What we can end up using to plead our case before the Lord in the face of His judgment can be the very things that He's come, the very idols that He has come to tear down. If we use just ordinary kind of daily activities um, to plead our case in our defense, do you think that we're going to use spiritual activity too? You bet. This is what Judah did. This is what they knew. Right? They, the help that they ran to was sacrifice. They're part of the sacrificial system. Look at chapter uh, 6, verses 6 and 7. What's going to help me push back against the re- reality of God's judgment? What's going to help me escape that? How about not just one ram? How about a thousand rams without blemish? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? How about offering up my firstborn son for, for, for the forgiveness of my soul? Right? They, they had sacrifices for many things, right? many parts of life. They're all for what we call unwitting sins. I, I call them, oops, I did it again sins, like accidental sins. I really didn't mean to sin in this way. I did. I'm sorry, Lord. Here's a sacrifice to cover that sin. But those sacrifices, they weren't permanently effective right, to escape God's judgment. They had to do them day after day after day, year after year after year. What did the Lord say that he required of them? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with him. And that's not just a one-time thing. The sense is you have to do this all the time, every day, all throughout the day, for the rest of your life, without fail. That's what it looks like to do justice and love kindness and walk home with Him. To do it perfectly. But what's the problem? They're sinners. They constantly sin. Not just accidentally, but through deliberate, willful rebellion. Right? They have hated good. They've loved evil. And nothing will cover willful sin. Not even for the Israelites. There was no sacrifice in the Jewish sacrificial system that would cover rebellion. Here's the only way that you could atone for that sin. Rebels must die. Rebels must die. So is this God a God of vengeance? Does he revel in, in squashing the, you know, the rebel scum? No. No. He's a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's his character. That's the mantra of God's people throughout all the Old Testament. This is who God is. He's slow to anger. It means he's long-suffering. It means he has a long fuse. But, but notice something. In, in chapter 6, as God begins his indictment at the beginning of chapter 6, he doesn't begin with listing all the evils of Israel. He doesn't say, where were you on the night of February 3rd, you know, 600 B.C.? Right? <laughs> No. What does he do? He recounts his love for his people. 
He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Do you hear the heart of God breaking for his people? Does the breaking heart of God, does it break your heart? Does it break you? The bad news is that we're far worse off than we think we are. And that means that God is perfectly justified in extending wrath to us. But here's the good news. That he is far more gracious than we dare to imagine. Right? That, that's, that's the hope that we have. The Lord desires that no one would perish. Right? That no one would perish. He does not revel in inflicting pain and suffering. But he revels he delights in mercy and in extending deliverance and salvation to those whom he loves. If you and I plead our case before the Lord in our own power, we have no hope. The problem is that we're not just, oops, I did it again, accidental sinners. We're coming at God, clenched fist, shaking our hand before him, saying, I will not follow you. That's what sin is. That's what my sin is. I've got no leg to stand on in pleading my case before him. I can't justify myself. I can't plead my righteousness. I have none. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, he said that, that even the best prayer I ever offer up to the Lord is so stained with sin that God could damn me for it. Sam Phillips, who's a songwriter, she was once the wife of uh, the oft-quoted T-Bone Burnett. Um, she, she said, I need God. I need His love. I need fire to melt the frozen sea inside me. This is what we need, and this is the hope that we have. In Micah chapter, chapter 7, it's not listed for you in your bulletin, but it's verse 9 of chapter 7. Here's, here's what it says. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. Let me just read that again. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Wait, so I I can't vindicate. I, I can't justify myself, but the Lord does it for me? What? What? I can't plead my my cause against God, but he pleads my cause for me? Peace has been made with God on my behalf by God Himself. What on earth? How does that math work? But this is the surprise of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel. Right? That God intercedes on our behalf. So who is this one to bring us peace? How are we going to get peace with God? Micah chapter 5, verse 5. You don't have to turn there, but, but Micah 5, verse 5. It's a prophecy about one who would come from Bethlehem, who would stand in the majesty of the Lord, who would be a king over his people, who would be a shepherd. And it says, and he shall be their peace. Who is he talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. This is what the Lord does. He delivers us through a deliverer. Remember, we're rebels, right? We don't deserve this. Look look at chapter 7, verses 18 through 20 in your bulletin. The Lord forgives the iniquities of rebels. His anger is no longer directed towards rebels because he delights in steadfast love that's directed towards rebels. He has compassion on rebels. He squashes out the sins of rebels. He keeps the promise he made to bless rebels and show rebels favor for eternity. 
This is who our Lord is. He loves mercy more than sacrifice to the point that the Father gave up His Son, His one and only Son, the Son whom He loved, so that you and I could be shown mercy. That's a surprising hope of the Gospel. But not everyone escapes. In that great mantra of the character of God from Exodus 34, it says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We are far more sinful, far worse off than we would like to believe, than we would dare to believe. The only hope that we have to escape the the reality, that harsh reality of God's judgment, is to plead our case. And the only thing that we have to plead is Jesus. So what do we do? We run to Jesus. When you accidentally sin, run to Jesus. When you willfully rebel against the Lord, what do you do? Run to Jesus. When you've done a lot of good acts of mercy and justice, what do you do? Run to Jesus because your heart is deceitful above all things. Run to Jesus. When you think you've done a good job parenting your kids, and maybe you have, you need to run to Jesus. When you feel that you're too far gone, that not even a God of steadfast love could truly love you because of how messed up you are, Run to Jesus. He's far more gracious than you would imagine. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, he, he knew what it was like um, to run to everything else except the Lord. And then he realized one day that the Lord had run to him in his grace and mercy. He had participated in the cruel injustice uh, of the slave trade. And uh, this is what he wrote about pleading our cause in Christ before the Lord. He says, when after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, uh, after, excuse me, when after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and insensibility, sinners find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ. Jesus becomes more and more precious to their souls. They love much because much has been forgiven them. They dare not ascribe anything to themselves, but are glad to acknowledge that they have, must have perished a thousand times over if Jesus had not been their Savior, their Shepherd, and their Shield. A sense of great unworthiness and much forgiveness checks these evils. So what does it say about how we should engage others? What does it say how, about how we should think about others and speak about others in, this, in the church and outside of the church? What if instead of holding up a measure of another person's goodness that's of our own design, what if we hold up the cross of Jesus and said, you know, this is someone who's every bit as deserving of God's judgment, of his wrath as I am. And also someone that is just as desperate for his grace and mercy as me. How would that change our lives? How would that change our prayers? How would that change how we use the internet and email? How would that change um, who we go out of our way to speak to and to befriend, to love, to be hospitable towards? What if we looked at them the way that the Lord looks at them? As someone who needs grace and mercy. His grace that would cover every thought and every word and every deed. It would change our lives. 
The Lord sold us what, what he requires of us, what is good, right? To do justice, to love kindness, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. And in our own power, you and I cannot do that. We will always fail. But not if we run to Jesus. Not if we run to Jesus. Because it's through him that little by little, every single day, he's making us look more and more like the people he wants us to become. Right? And we realize more and more every day that he has healed and is healing our hearts that are full of corruption. Stained with sin. Newton, he said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave your son so willingly. And that he sacrificed himself so obediently for us, for our salvation. Uh, that amazes us. That is amazing grace. Lord, would we live out of that? Um, the reality that, that we deserve your judgment, but we need your grace and mercy. Uh, would you renew that longing within us uh, to lean into your grace? And for those here that maybe um, are not there yet, would you give them a longing to lean into your grace? To know that we cannot rest on our laurels. We have nothing good to give. We can only plead the mercy of Christ, our Savior, who loves us with a love beyond comprehension. Would you do this for your glory and our sake, our joy? In Christ's name, amen.